0: Well, good morning again. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we just pray that as we just tackle this tough passage of Scripture, you just open up our eyes and our ears to hear what you want us to learn from this. And I just pray that it's not just for head knowledge, that you just use your words to help change our hearts and transform us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, Amen. Will you please open up your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. Our text for today is going to be Numbers 21, verse 4 through 9. But before we go there, we need to start somewhere else. We need to start our journey on the dusty road to Emmaus, where two of Jesus' disciples were downtrodden. They were depressed and they were confused. They could not comprehend what had just happened. Just a few days before, they had seen Jesus taken into custody and crucified on a Roman cross. They had placed all their hopes in him, but he died. Now some women had reported that his body was no longer in the tomb and that the women were told by an angel that Jesus was alive. None of it made any sense to them. As they walked at Emmaus, they were joined by a stranger. The stranger was Jesus, but their eyes had been prevented from recognizing him. As they poured their hearts out to him, he made some astonishing comments. In Luke 24, verses 25 to 27, Jesus said, "'O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken!' Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them all things concerning, concerning himself in all of Scripture. Our text for today is familiar, but strange passage of Scripture that some would like to pass off as a parable or a fable. But it is a real event that actually happened. A real event that has spiritual lessons for us today. A real event that points to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you are not already found your way there, please turn to Numbers 21. I'll be reading from the New Legacy Standard Bible, which one of the characteristics of this Bible is in the Old Testament, where you see Lord in small but all capital letters. It translated as Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God, which is more in line with what's in the original Hebrew. Starting verse 4. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. So Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it will be that everyone who is bit it and looks at it will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it happened that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. This morning we're going to examine our passage in four points the complaint, the correction, the cure and finally the Christ first let's look at the complaint as we enter into Numbers chapter 21 the Israelites had just experienced several hardships they saw God pronounce a judgment against Moses and Aaron after Moses struck the rock to bring forth water instead of simply speaking to it they suffered the death of Aaron and Moses' wife Miriam then they had to deal with the Canaanite problem. King, King Arad and the Canaanites took some of the Israel, Israelite spies captive. The Israelites vowed to God that if they would devote the Canaanite cities to destruction, I'm sorry, they vowed to God that they would devote the Canaanite cities to destruction if God gave them into, over to their hand. And God heard their prayer and granted them a decisive victory. But they did not get a chance to celebrate this victory for long. Verse 4. Then they set off from Mount Hor by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people came impatient on the way. The Israelites were closer to the promised land than they had ever been before, but they had to turn around and head back in the complete opposite direction. They could not take the most route through Edom, because it refused access to the land despite their passionate pleas. Why did Edom refuse to let the Israelites access to the roads? In Numbers 20, starting verse 14, From Kadesh, Moses sent messengers to the king of Edom. Thus your brother Israel has said, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt and we stayed in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly. So we cried out to Yahweh and he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We are not passed through the field or through the vineyard. We will not even drink the water from your well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn to the right or to the left until we pass through your territory. Edom, however, said to him, You shall not pass through us, lest I come out to meet you with the sword. Again, the sons of Israel said to him, We will go up by the highway, and if I and my livestock do drink any of your water, then I will pay its price. Let me only pass through on my feet, nothing else. But he said, You shall not pass through. And Edom came out to meet him with a heavy force and a strong hand. Thus, Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Israel turned from him. Yet another setback, another detour. They have been wandering the wilderness for around 40 years and have not yet entered the promised land. Even if I was driving, it would not take us 40 years to travel from Egypt to Canaan. This new route was not going to be an easy one. It was this rock was made up of loose sand and drifts of granite, which made walking difficult. It would have exposed to the hot sun for long periods of time, and they would have to contend with frequent sandstorms. It was not going to be an easy journey. And the Israelites did not take this new setback well. According to the text, they became impatient along the way. The word impatient puts it kind of lightly. They were discontent. They were frustrated, irritated, angry. We can all relate to what they were feeling. Just look at how frustrated we get when we have to take a 10-minute detour. Their detour lasted years. But why would they wander the wilderness for 40 years trying to reach the promised land when the journey does not take anywhere near that long? Was it because Moses couldn't read a map? Was it bad directions? Or is it road construction? No. It was due to the sin Their sin and rebellion against God. In Numbers 14, starting verse 28, Moses recorded the words of God. Say to them, as I live, declares Yahweh, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you, your corpse will fall in a wilderness, even all of your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunnehah and Joshua the son of Nun. Your little ones, however, who you said would would become plunder, I will bring them in, so that they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpse will fall in the wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds for forty years in the wilderness. And they will suffer for your unfaithfulness, until your corpse come to an end in the wilderness." According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear the guilt, a year, even 40 years, and you are no my opposition. The Israelites had no one to blame but themselves for the predicament, but they refused to take responsibility for their actions. They did what sinners so often do when we feel the crushing weight of the consequences of their sin. They blame shifted and they complained. Verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no water. There is no food and no water. And we loathe this miserable food. The Israelites spoke against God. In other words, they complained about God. They blasphemed God. They doubted that he had their best interests in mind when he freed them from slavery in Egypt. They basically accused him of being incompetent by implying that he did not know what he was doing. They even complained about the provisions that he graciously provided to them as they wandered around in the wilderness. God had graciously prevented their clothing and sanders from wearing out. God had graciously provided water for them to drink. God graciously provided bread from heaven for them to eat. In Exodus 16.31, It says, the house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. When we read this account, we can sometimes be disgusted when we read how the Israelites referred to manna as miserable food. They had called the food that God provided them miserable. Miserable as in, it was horrible. It was inadequate. They didn't say they were tired of it, that they didn't care for it, or they didn't like it. They said they loathed it. They hated it. How could they be so unappreciative? Without it, they would have starved. How could they possibly spawn that way of knowing that God was providing food for them in a barren wilderness? It's really not that hard to figure out. They responded that way because they were sinners, just like you and just like me. How often have you responded the same way? How often if you stared into an open refrigerator full of food and complained that there was nothing to eat? Do you not realize that you are rejecting and complaining about the provisions that God has graciously provided you? Provisions that he blessed you with, that he did not have to provide. But he did, because he is a patient, merciful, loving, and generous God. Some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, Chris. God did not make that food appear in my refrigerator like he sent manna down from heaven. I worked hard and earned that money that I used to buy that food. My friends, who do you think gave you that job? Who do you think gave you the knowledge and skills necessary to do your job? Who do you think gave you the body and mind that's healthy enough to continue to work? Why we so often are like the Israelites, We do not appreciate the gifts that God has given us. But their rejection of the manna took it one step further. In a way, it was also rejection of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. The Puritan Thomas Watson has said, The manna is miraculous. It came from heaven in an extraordinary way. It was mystical. It was a type and figure of the Lord Jesus who is called the bread of life and the hidden manna. The contempt, therefore manna, was a contempt of Christ. The Israelites did not just complain about God and the food that he provided. They also complained about his servant, Moses. When people get angry and frustrated when things don't go their way, they often take their anger out on God's servants. Once again, we are no better than the Israelites. We often do the same thing, but often for insignificant reasons. Don't believe me? If you would go down to a Bob Evans or a Cracker Barrel around 1230 on a Sunday, you'll see tables full of Christians, some of them dressed in the Sunday best, having the pastor for lunch. They're taking turns spreading gossip, complaining, and tearing down a man of God over petty issues. It's like their pastor is their personal punching bag. It is sinful and it's heartbreaking. My friends, complaining against God and his servants is no small thing. As we're about to see, God takes it very seriously. Moving on to our second point, the correction. This is around the tenth time that the Israelites had complained against God and Moses. Once again, they sinned against the Almighty God and His servant. Out of love for His people, God took corrective action against them. Verse 6, So Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people, And they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. When we read this verse, four questions come to mind. First, why serpents? Why snakes? God could have sent scorpions. He could have sent spiders. He could have sent anything. But he chose to send serpents. The serpents clearly symbolized two of Israel's greatest enemies, Satan and Egypt. The serpents symbolized Satan and the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. They were a reminder of the cosmic battle between the seed of the woman and Satan. The serpents also symbolized Egypt, where the Israelites were enslaved and forced to make bricks. The Egyptians worshipped serpents, especially cobras. If you look at ancient Egyptian art, you would see that it is full of serpents. Even the headdress worn by the Pharaoh was made to represent a serpent. It was meant to show the source of his power. According to Andy Nassali, it's as if God said to the planting Israelites, so you miss Egypt? Here you go. Have some snakes. The central animal that that Egypt idolatrously venerates. Second. Why did the text describe the serpents as fiery? The commentators have several different theories. Some believe that it was due to their aggressiveness. They were not just hiding and only bit someone who surprised them or stepped on them. These serpents struck anyone who was near them and were ferocious. Other commentators believe it was due to their coloring. They believe the serpents may have been a dark orange or reddish color that resembled flames. Still, other commentators believe that it was due to the intense burning pain that resulted from being bit by a venomous snake. Their venom was so painful and so potent that many of people of Israel died. We may not know the exact reason why the serpents were referred to as fiery, but I believe that all three of the theories may be correct. Third, did God send the snakes to the entire camp? In our text, we see that God sent the serpents among the people. God did not just send a a few serpents into the tents of the people who grumbled and complained. He sent them into the entire camp, and everybody was in danger. Everyone in the camp had a snake problem, just like every one of us has a sin problem. We do not sin in a vacuum, and our sins have devastating effects on those around us. Besides, there was no one in that camp that had not sinned against God in some way. Fourth, was God too harsh on the Israelites when he sent serpents into the camp? Some people read this message and think that God grossly overreacted when he sent serpents to bite and kill the Israelites, whose only offense was grumbling and complaining. They think that grumbling and complaining is not really that big of a deal. They think that it's harmless and it's not really hurt anyone. It's not like it's one of those big sins like adultery. My friends, if that is your view, then you have a very low view of God and do not understand the seriousness of sin. Sin is lawlessness. Every sin is an outright rebelling against our great God. Even the ones that we do not think are that bad, like discontentment and complaining. Sins like discontentment and complaining reveal what is in a person's heart. They reveal a heart that is full of pride, a heart that does not trust God. They reveal a heart that thinks it knows more than God and can do a better job than he can. When God sent servants to the camp, he was not being harsh. He was not being unfair. He was being just. He was merely allowing the Israelites to experience the consequences of their sin, the consequences of the cosmic treason against him. And what are the consequences of sin? The Apostle Paul reminded us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. These serpents did exactly what God intended them to do. For some of the Israelites, the serpents were the instruments that God used to deliver his divine judgment against them. For some of the Israelites, the serpents brought them to the end of themselves and drove them to repentance. Verse 7. Then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against Yahweh and against you. Pray to Yahweh that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. The Israelites' repentance was real and it was authentic. When the Israelites repented, Moses did not throw the sin back in their face. He prayed for them. He interceded for them. Let that be an example to us. When someone who wronged you repents, Don't spend 20 minutes lecturing them on what they did wrong. Instead, celebrate the restoration of your fellowship with them and pray for them. Now let's move on to our third point, the cure. Moses prayed to God to save the people from the serpents. God heard his prayer and he answered it in a very unusual way. He did not give Moses a recipe to make an antidote or tell him how to milk a snake to make an antivenom. He did not instantaneously remove all the serpents. He did not remove the venom sacks and make them as harmless as a gardener snake. He did not summon mongooses or other animals to kill and eat the serpents. He did not command the serpents to slither away. He did not do any of that. Instead, he gave Moses a project to do. A project that would have taken some time and sent him to the forge. Verse 8. Then, Moses, then Yahweh said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it will be that everyone who is bitten and looks at it will live. In this verse, the word fiery does not refer to the serpent's color, aggressiveness, or its venom. It refers to what God wanted Moses to make, a serpent made of bronze. At this point, there are three very important distinctions we have to make. First, the bronze serpent only provided physical healing and saved the Israelites from physical death God was not offering the Israelites eternal life when they looked to the bronze serpent he was only offered to save them from the serpent's venom second, the bronze serpent did not have any special healing powers on on its own according to Dennis Johnson this was not primitive magic it was not primitive, primitive superstitious homeopathy in which a fixation of venomous snakes cures venomous snake bites. The power behind the bronze serpent was God himself. He was merely using it as means to bestow a healing grace on his rebellious people. Third, God did not command Moses to violate the second commandment. According to Exodus chapter 20, starting verse 4, the second commandment is, you should not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven, above, or on the earth, beneath, or in the water, under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." A quick reading of the second commandment may lead one to think that God did command Moses to violate the second commandment. However, we definitely know that is not the case. How do we come to this conclusion? This topic requires a much further study, but let me briefly say, God is the divine lawmaker, lawgiver, and the only one who can divinely interpret his laws. He would not have commanded Moses and the Israelites to break his holy law. We also know that there are other times when God commanded his people to make images or symbols. The Ark of the Covenant is a perfect example of this. In Exodus 25, God commanded the Israelites to, you shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at the end and one cherub at the other end. For one piece you shall make the mercy seat with a cherubim at its two ends. The cherubim shall have the wings spread outward, covering the mercy seat with its wings, with their faces towards one another. The faces of the cherubim are, are to be towards the mercy seat. We also know that the bronze servant was not intended to be an object of worship. If it was, then it would have violated the second commandment. The Israelites were only to look at it and have faith that God would do what he said he would do. Save them from the snake bites. my friends, the bronze serpent was also made to point to something else. Something better. But more on that later. Verse 9. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it happened that if a serpent bit any man when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Once Moses and the skilled metal forged the bronze serpent, they set it on the standard so it could be seen from a distance. A standard is simply a long flagpole. You can almost imagine what the Israelites were thinking when Moses told them they would, would not die when bitten by a serpent if they looked to the bronze serpent. Some of them might have been thinking that Moses had finally lost it. They might have thought that all that wandering the desert finally drove Moses crazy. Moses told them that if they wanted to be healed, they had to look to the metal symbol of the very thing that was inflicting them. It sounded foolish, but just because something sounds foolish does not mean that it is. To the Israelites that looked to the bronze serpent after being bitten by a serpent, it was not foolishness. It was the power of God to save them physically. The Apostle Paul gives us another example of something else the world sees as foolishness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. My friends, do you notice in verse 9 that God did not promise that you would no longer be bitten by the serpents, only that you would survive the bites. The Israelites still had to deal with the serpents and their painful bites. But those bites no longer had power to take their lives if they looked to the bronze serpent. This reminds me of how Christians, we can still sin, but it no longer has power over us. That when we sin, we no longer experience the wrath of God because Christ experienced it for us. When God commanded Moses to make the bronze serpent, it was yet another example of God's faithfulness and mercy. It was an example of him keeping his promise that anyone who looked to the bronze serpent lived, lived and did not die the agonizing death from a venomous snake bite. And he proved his faithfulness to keep that promise. Bite after bite after bite. We also see in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses reminded the Israelites of how God graciously led them through the testing in the wilderness. In verse 15, he reminded them that. He led you through great and fearsome wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. So whatever happened to this bronze serpent? Is it one of the artifacts that the Roman Catholics claim to have in the Vatican? Can you go see it in a museum? Unfortunately, you cannot. Man's sinful heart turned an object that God used to bless them into an idol and worshipped it. In 2 Kings chapter eight, 18, verses 1-4, through four, it says, <clears throat> Now it happened in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, That Hezekiah the son of Ahaz the king of Judah became king He was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem And his mother's name was Abbi the daughter of Zechariah And he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh according to all that David his father had done He took away the high places and shattered the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made For until those days, the sons of Israel were burning incense to it and it was called Neshulotan. It was just another example of how our hearts are idle factories. Now let's move on to our fourth and final point, the Christ. This odd count in the book of Numbers actually happened. It is real history. But there's so much more to the story than we can pick up reading the six verses that make up this account a meaning that can only be found through the illumination of the Holy Spirit and by using the rest of God's special revelation, the Holy Bible, to help us interpret this passage. We're looking for the census plenier, or the fuller meaning of the text. The text's fuller meaning does not mean we negate its intended meaning to the original audience, but expands it in light of the full revelation of God. So what is the census plenier of this text? Where do we find Christ in the middle of this story about sin and serpents? When you read this text, Christ is not to seem to be in it. It does not mention Jesus. It does not mention the Messiah. It does not mention a coming king. So how can we say that it points to Christ when it looks like he is nowhere to be found in it? We know that it does because Jesus himself said so in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 where he discussed with Nicodemus our need to be born again. Starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can come and do these signs that you do not do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do you not more that I have said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it is coming from or where it is going. So is everyone who has not been born of the, so is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and do not accept our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I told you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven the Son of Man. And and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever whoever believes will in him have eternal life. My friends, the bronze serpent pointed to Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for us. Just like the only solution to the serpent problem was look to the bronze serpent, the only solution to our sin problem is to look to our Savior, Jesus Christ. For the Israelites, to look to the bronze serpent meant more than just glancing at it or merely seeing it. To look at it did mean to physically look at it, but it also meant to look at the bronze serpent in faith. To look in faith with confidence that God would do what He said He would do, save them from the serpent's venom. For us, we cannot physically look at Christ at this time. So to look to Christ means to look at Him in faith. To look to Him with full confidence that God would do what He said He would do. Save us from our sins. Have you done that? Have you looked to Christ to save you? Have you embraced the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? If not, then what you're about to hear is the best news you'll ever hear. But before we talk about the good news, we have to talk about the bad news. The bad news is that you have sinned against the Holy God. You are not a really good person that sins every now and then. You have not just sinned once or twice. Your life is full of sin and you have broken each and every one of the Ten Commandments. Even if you try, you cannot count the number of times you rebelled against God and sinned against Him. And because of your sins against a holy and just God, He will do what is right and punish you for your sins. He will send you to hell, where he will pour out his wrath on you for eternity, not for two weeks or two months or forty years, for eternity, and that is the bad news. Thankfully, there is also good news. The good news is that God graciously provided a way for you to escape the wrath to come, and that way of escape is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the perfect life that you cannot live, and went to the cross as a perf as God's. Ordained plan to save sinners. On the cross, he substituted himself for all those who repent and believe. He took their place and paid the penalty of their sins for them and gives them the perfect record of his obedience to God's law. And we know that God accepted his death as payment in full because he rose from the dead three days later. My friends, if you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus alone for your salvation, he will save you. And that is the good news of the gospel. Will you look to him and live? My friends, the bronze serpent pointed more than just looking to Christ to be saved. In some ways, it also symbolizes the work that Christ did on the cross to save us. Just like the bronze serpent was lifted up in the sander, Christ was lifted up on the cross. The bronze serpent represented sin and that is what Christ became for us on the cross. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Just so there's no misunderstanding we're not saying that Christ became when we say that Christ became sin for us we're not saying that he became a sinner himself. He took the sin upon himself. The bronze serpent also represented the curse that inflicted all men since the fall, and how Christ became a curse for us on the cross. In Galatians three, ten to fourteen, Paul said, For as many of you are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, curses is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, to do them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteousness for the righteous shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. Rather, he who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For as it is written, "Curses is everyone who hangs on a tree. In, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The next time you read this odd account in the book of Numbers, I pray that you see more than just a bunch of serpents. I pray that you see Christ. In closing, if you not yet know Christ, I would like to implore you one last time to look to Christ to be saved. In the words of William Ogden in the hymn, Look and Live. Look and live, my brother, live. Look to Jesus now and live. Tis recorded in his word, Alleluia. It is only that you look and live. I have a message full of love. Alleluia. A message, oh my friend, for you. Tis a message from above. Alleluia. Jesus said it and I know it is true. Life is offered unto you. Alleluia. Eternal life your soul shall have if only you look to Him. Alleluia. Look to Jesus who alone can save. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we just come before today and I just pray that for, if anyone here today does not know You, that they will look unto Your Son and live. That they will see that the only way to have eternal life and forgiveness of sin is through Your Son, Jesus Christ. And I just pray, as we just go out throughout the rest of this week, we live in a way that just glorifies You in all that we do. In the name of Your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.